Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hey guys, Ashley McKinless here. Zach Davis is taking some very well-deserved time off this week, so we don't have a new episode. But we did want to do something to mark the March for Life, which is happening this Friday, January 29th. As you probably know, every year, tens of thousands of students, clergy, and pro-life activists gather in Washington to witness against abortion. And as you might expect, the march will look different this year because of COVID-19. Organizers wisely decided to move most of the event online, though a limited number of speakers, performers, and participants will gather on the National Mall for a live stream rally and march. So if you're listening to this on Friday morning, you can tune in to the events wherever you are. But there is something else noteworthy about this year's March for Life. It's the first of the post-Trump era. Something Zach and I have talked about a lot um, on the show in the past four years is this unholy alliance between the pro-life movement and President Trump. So yes, President Trump um, said the right things about abortion, uh, appointed the right judges, and even became the first sitting U.S. president to attend the March for Life in 2020. But he showed in so many different ways um, how little he respects the dignity of all human life in every stage, Um, whether that's uh, his support for the death penalty or his treatment of migrants and refugees. So whether it's fair or not, whether we like it or not, for many Americans, uh, Trump will remain the face of the pro-life movement, even though he's out of office. So where do we go from here? What can those of us who oppose abortion and the death penalty do to change the conversation around these issues? Uh, We actually got one answer to that question back in 2019 when we talked to Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, who's the founder of New Wave Feminist. Destiny became a mother at a young age, and her experience inspired her to form a pro-life feminist organization that not only worked against abortion, but worked to give women the support and resources they need to make motherhood a feasible option. We wanted to share this conversation with you again today because it's people like Destiny who give us hope for the future of the pro-life movement. So we hope you enjoy that conversation and stick around. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Yes. Zach, did you happen to catch that quote from St. Augustine and Joe Biden's inaugural address? I did. And the first thing I noticed was that he's, uh, you can tell Joe Biden's Catholic because he said St. Augustine and not St. Augustine. Uh, (laughs) But right after that, I was, I realized that I was not familiar with the quote that he had used. Neither did I. I have read Augustine's Confessions, which is his autobiography, but I have not digged into his tome that is the city of God, which is where that quote came from. No. And, but I knew I've, I've always wanted to, but I've never really had the time. It's all, it's look at that book and to think about doing it alone is a task that I am not up to. But good news with the Great Courses Plus, in addition to the you know hundreds of courses they have on there for you to go through, one of them is Books That Matter, City of God. 
And I believe this is taught by a professor that you are familiar with, Ashley. Yes, it is Professor Charles Matthew at the University of Virginia. I did take his Christian ethics course back when I was, I think, maybe a sophomore, um, and it was wonderful. So when I saw his name pop up on the Great Courses Plus, I was very excited. And I've I've only gotten about three three lectures in, but like it's even more appropriate now than I could have imagined. Like this book was inspired by the sack of Rome, <laughs> partly, and and then like explaining uh, kind of how Christians can fit into the political world whether there is a place for whether Christians can be good citizens while ho- holding on to their to their faith and Christian virtues. So I think it seems relevant right now. Yeah, no, if you're wondering <laughs> how to be a Christian in a dying empire for you know, no reason whatsoever, this is definitely the course for you. All you have to do is sign up for your free month of the City of God, plus hundreds of other courses on The Great Courses Plus. You, all you have to do is visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical, so they know we sent you. Joining us via Skype is Destiny Herdin De La Rosa. She is an American pro-life activist and the founder of the pro-life organization New Wave Feminist. Welcome to Jesuitical, Destiny. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited that you're joining us. So first question, when you founded New Wave Feminist, the pro-life movement was already pretty well established. There are a number of national and local organizations already working. So why did you decide to start New Wave? You know, I think that those organizations are doing wonderful work, but I was kind of sick of showing up and being the only person with like hot pink hair. And so I thought (laughs) we need to carve out our own niche for some kind of like younger, uh, more alternative and even kind of more progressive politically um, pro-life activists. Because at the end of the day, I think our concern is that we cannot change the culture with just one um, political party or or even religion. Like it, it has to be everybody. So we have to make sure that we're reaching out to people who don't look like us and letting them know that there is a place for you in this movement and we want to represent you as well. So what what are like the foundational values of New Wave Feminists that maybe do make it a little bit different than other pro-life groups? Yeah, so we um, subscribe to something called the consistent life ethic, and that means that we're anti-death penalty, anti-torture, anti-war, and then we extend that into the womb by also being anti-abortion. So basically, it's just a belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. And because of that, you know, we're kind of politically homeless, most of us. There's not consistency uh, on either side. And so, again, it's just this kind of niche area where we're able to represent people. Um, you know, one of the coolest things is people saying, oh, my gosh, I didn't know you existed. Like, I wanted to call myself a feminist for so long, but ha- thought that that meant I had to align myself with this pro-abortion movement. And I disagree with that. And how can I get more involved? You know, I want to work to empower women. And of course, we've seen the pro-life movement doing that for so long. They go out of their way to empower women, but they they get this kind of stereotype and narrative pushed upon them that were anti-woman, which couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. So can you mentioned the term consistent life ethic, which I think might be familiar to some Catholics, but your group isn't explicitly religious, is it? 
No, not at all. I mean, our group is, I personally am agnostic. We've got atheists, we have Wiccans, we have Muslims and Catholics and Protestants. And so we we kind of run the full gamut of that, which is why we're a secular organization. But, you know, that's kind of the beauty of of intersectional feminism and the idea that everybody's bringing their own experiences to the table and really being able to dialogue. So the term consistent life ethic, I think some people in pro-life circles are a little bit suspicious of it sometimes because it's sometimes used as a dodge to not care about abortion. Right. Um, what, what's your what's your take on that and what's your response when people m- might bring that to you? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely heard that argument that it's, you know, well, you don't care about refugees and, and you know, um, the suicide rate or whatever their other particular issue is. And so why should I care about abortion? We want to flip that on its head. It should be the exact opposite. I care so passionately about abortion because I care about the human dignity of people. And that is going to extend to all of these other things. So we should be fighting for all of these issues at the same time. And I think for a long time, there's been this mentality within the pro-life movement that, um, you know, the the ship's not big enough for all these issues. You can really only focus on one. And I found that that's really not true at all. Um, the more active we are, we go to college campuses and speak, and we promote a lot of different volunteer and humari- humanitarian efforts. And the more that we're going out and we're saying, hey, let's talk about what's going on down at the border. Let's talk about the death penalty. Let's talk about, you know, sex trafficking. All of these things are so intrinsically tied together. And people who normally wouldn't even think about the abortion issue suddenly start seeing this thread of humanity that goes through all of them. And so they're much more willing to, uh, to listen to us when it comes to talking about the humanity of the unborn child, because it's that old adage that they don't know what you care until they care that you know. And I've just found that it's allowed us to reach a whole different audience because for too long, the pro-life movement, unfortunately, has been set on just laws and overturning Roe. There's a blogger, Mark Shea, who says it best that it's an issue of supply and demand. They're trying to cut off supply, but they're not necessarily addressing the demand side. And so my group really wants to focus on that. What is it that is causing women to think that they need abortion? And how can we remove those obstacles from them. And the more that we talk about that with people, it's not a matter of taking a right away, but how can society better facilitate you making nonviolent choices? We're talking to you uh, before the March for Life and before the Women's March. Um, I know you've you've attended both, but I think you've described feeling kind of like an outsider at, at both of them um, for different reasons. Can, can you explain why that is? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I am able to see the consistencies in both of them. It's a bunch of passionate people who really want a better world, you know, um, whether it's focused on women or women and unborn children, like there is this activist drive. And so we think it's really beautiful to be able to go to both and again, challenge both sides, because when you go to the Women's March, obviously they have a very staunch um, pro-choice platform and they're sponsored by Planned Parenthood. And so as you're listening to them speak about human rights violations and the prison industrial complex, and I mean, all of these other things that we're very passionate about, we cheer along and then you have someone get up and start promoting abortion. And it's just this huge disconnect when you have a movement that's opposing violence, but then thinks violence against the weakest and most vulnerable is okay. So then we raise up our pro-life signs and we feel like it's really important to be a dissenting voice in the crowd, not just boycott it and not go, but be there challenging. Um, And then, you know, likewise with the March for Life, it is something that is usually viewed as a very conservative march. You know, during the rally, the last few years, we've had um, Mike Pence and President Trump this year. It's going to be Ben Shapiro. So it's kind of like 
These are the, the main stage uh, speakers, sort of the keynotes, yeah? The main stage, yeah, that speak at the rallies. And so it's always frustrating to me because optics-wise, when you have a bunch of people who think you're only older white conservative males, and then every year those are the people kind of headlining. And I'm not saying, you know, there's there's anything wrong with that. They definitely know their audience and that's who they want to have. But we've always offered alternative kind of meetups beforehand where we've had very degre- very diverse groups of women speaking about issues again uh, that are boots on the ground level type stuff. Because I think a lot of us are done with waiting for the government to save us. And every four to eight years, you know, policy's changing and it really uh, hurting our communities. And so we want to talk to people who are doing it, who are making a difference in their communities and really highlight them. I find it strange too, because especially with the March being made up of a ton of young people and high schoolers and college students in particular. And that's something that's always touted about the march. And it's true. I've been four times and it is always young people. But I don't think young people think super left, right, binary, it, like politically at that point in their lives. And so they're sort of being taught how to think about the abortion issue in a political way when all of those speakers are there from the same party. Yeah, I think that's the frustrating thing, because I think the the most dangerous thing we ever did was make abortion a partisan issue. This is a human rights issue. It's something that everybody should care about. And so when we keep just linking it to one political party that, you know, has some questionable other activities that people would say, okay, well, that's not whole life. That's not pro-life all the way. And it's it's kind of strictly anti-abortion. And likewise, Democrats obviously have this huge blind spot when it comes to the issue of abortion. And so I think young people are hungry for consistency and they're hungry for a message that resonates with them. And that's why we always fall back to consistent life ethic, because it's kind of the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated and help those who need help. Well, and it's something I've really appreciated about uh, New Wave Feminist's approach to engaging with the Women's March is that there are other pro-life organizations that I won't necessarily name or throw under the bus here, but that will sort of go with their cameras ready and they'll go for like five minutes, wait for someone to scream at them, film it, upload it and send it out to all their donors looking for, you know, fundraising. Like, look at these crazy leftist mm-hmm. liberals. They hate pro-lifers. Um, whereas you did experience some heckling, unwelcome, but you're still going back and you're still trying to build those bridges. Yeah, I think one of the one of the worst things the pro-life movement does is it dehumanizes others in the attempt to humanize the unborn child. Absolutely. And so that's great for fundraising. You know, here's our enemy. Give us money so we can fight against it. But you're going to lose all those people. And it goes back to that kind of fact that we stopped persuading. At some point, it just became about changing the law and cutting off, you know, supply. But we need to be actively out there persuading others to see that we have a very valid point that this is a human rights issue. And you can't do that when you're using them as fundraising fodder and, you know, taking them off at marches. So I have found that, you know, when I go and I smile and I'm friendly and open and warm to people, I get the same thing in return. You mentioned before how you're, how new wave feminists try to, uh, look at the demand for abortion and try to make there be less demand. What are some of the specific, like concrete things your group does or that other groups are doing to do that? I think, you know, putting together, it's it's 2019, we have got to get a thorough database of all of the resources available to women, because they're great resources. But if nobody knows how to access them, then obviously, that's going to be a problem. And 
I remember a couple years ago actually being in a bathroom stall and one of my daughters was there and we had just shopped all day and I was really frustrated with her and I was kind of like reprimanding her as I was washing her hands in the sink and all of a sudden I looked behind me and I saw in in the stall the door was closed but there was a pregnancy test on the floor of this Walmart bathroom and I thought oh my gosh like you're not in a good place if you're taking a pregnancy test in a Walmart bathroom stall and you know due to social etiquette it's not like I can knock on the door or offer this woman any help or assistance. And I remember in that moment thinking, I wish I just had a card like that I could slip under the door that just had a website with all of the information available to her. Because whether it's maternity homes or WIC offices, Medicaid offices, pregnancy resource centers, places she can get clothes and diapers and all, all of the different services that I hold in my head constantly, it's really hard um, to give all that information to somebody because unfortunately we've kind of compartmentalized a lot. Like most cities will know their resources. And so we're trying to spread the word in college cities and say, okay, you guys need to know what's around you because whether it's in the bathroom at a Walmart or a woman standing behind you in line at Target and you can tell she's been crying and she's holding a pregnancy test, you become more empowered to help and empower her when you know what those resources look like. You've addressed a lot of like great things about dialogue and treating people who disagree with you compassion. But I think for, at least for me, I was president of my pro-life group at Loyola Chicago. And something we tried really hard to do was talk to like other students about abortion. And that is a terrifying thing um, because there's such a stigma around talking about it. Um, And even still, I get, I sort of tense up a little bit having, you know, been in the movement for a while. What are some like practical steps you have for people who are also, also maybe tense up when the word abortion comes up and that might be pro-life and might not know how to talk about, or it might be pro-choice and might not know how to talk about this issue. You know, one of the things that I always tell college kids is like, just don't be weird. Be that cool, normal person that they would come to and say, hey, where do you get your haircut? Or, you know, what's a good store around here? Like, if they would ask you advice for other stuff, then those are the people who are more inclined to come and talk to you about this very sensitive issue. But anytime you're speaking to someone, I always say you've got to address them as if abortion is part of their story or someone they love story. So you don't go in with guns blazing and, you know, abortions murder or something like that. Like, because there's a very good chance that their mother, their aunt, their best friend could have had an abortion. Maybe they've had an abortion. And so we always have to be speaking very compassionately. And it helps to understand the systemic issues that lead to abortion. You know, the fact that poverty is a big part of it. Um, When I was in high school, I actually got pregnant with my son when I was 16 years old. And my mother had gotten pregnant with me at 19. And so I had always been, you know, theoretically pro-life. Like in my mind, I always knew there was a chance that I could have been aborted myself. So I'll always be pro-life. But when it actually happened to me, it's a terrifying experience. Even if you know that, you know, abortion is not an option, you still have myriad other choices and decisions you have to make. And you have to grow up really, really fast. And so I remember going back from summer break. And by this point, I was five months pregnant and I had the little pooch and um, a girl walked up to me and she said, oh, I was pregnant over the summer too. And when she said that, I looked down and she didn't have the little pooch. And so I immediately, I think a part of me really um, felt kindred to the the unborn child. And I was so angry at her. I said, you killed your child and you're, you're proud of yourself. You're bragging about it. That's not at all what she was doing. She was trying to find someone who knew that experience and had been through it too. And so she cursed at me and, and stormed off. And that night, I remember going home and telling my mom and thinking my mom was going to be so proud of me for standing up, you know, for our pro-life beliefs. And it was the exact opposite. My mom said, you know, you're not a safe person. She'll never come talk to you again. She'll probably have her next abortion in your honor. Like you more than anybody know what it's like to be a scared teenager. 
And we don't know what she was up against. Maybe her parents were going to kick her out of her home. Maybe she didn't have health insurance. Like we don't even know. And so the next day I went back to school and in the hilarious way the universe works, a completely different girl comes up to me and says an almost identical thing. And all I knew was what not to say, but I hadn't like devised it. <laughs> <laughs> so with the second girl, I said, how far along were you? And she kind of looks off. She's like, I don't know, about like 12 weeks or something. And I'm literally sitting there at the cafeteria table reading what to expect when you're expecting. And I'm getting the baby center email updates. Like your baby's the size of a kumquat and this is what it can do now. And I rattled off some facts that to this day, I don't even remember what I said. It was fingernails and toenails, something like that. And she slammed her hands on the table and swore at me as well and then stormed off. And I'm like, I'm amazing at this. I should clearly become a pro-life activist. Um, (laughs) When I got home that night and compared these two different interactions, I realized one was just condemning and judgmental. That's all it was. The second one was giving a woman information that I think she should have had before she ever walked through the doors of an abortion clinic. And as a feminist, it bothered me so much to know that there is this active kind of movement to stop women from seeing sonograms or understanding what abortion truly is, what the procedure is, what fetal development is happening along the way. And I think that's why at our core, New Wave Feminists, we say we're pro-woman, we're pro-life, we're pro-education. We want to make sure that women are empowered and they know what all of their options are, what all of these procedures look like. You know, we're, we're in the age of the internet where people can access the information, but a lot of times when it comes to abortion, they don't want to access it. You know, ignorance is bliss to some degree. And so we really want to be educating people before they even get to the point where that decision's on the table. So Destiny, thank you so much for chatting with us. This was super insightful. And I know our listeners are going to love hearing your interview, um, but we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why? Oh my goodness, this is hard because I'm not Catholic, so I don't even know what it takes to get canonized. Perfect. <laughs> this leads to the best answers. Are the best answers? Yeah. Oh, you're not going to like this. I think I'm going to go with David Sedaris just because he's one of my favorite human beings in the world. Tell us, tell, tell us why David Sedaris should be uh, canonized. So he's a humor essayist and he brings me so much joy that I will be reading his essays. This is my form of self-care is just laughing. And so I will read his essays to the point where I'm laughing so hard. I start to wonder if I'm actually crying. I'm like, am I having a <laughs> What's your favorite essay? <laughs> oh, no, I can't say that on the okay. podcast. It's so funny, though. Oh, my gosh. It's just if you've never read a short story by David Sedaris, you have to. All right, St. David Sedaris. <laughs> awesome. Thank Des- you so much for talking yeah, with us. Yeah, good luck this weekend. Yeah, good luck. Where can people learn more about New Wave Feminists? Definitely on our Facebook page. Okay. So New Wave Feminists uh, on Facebook and then newwavefeminists.com. All right, good luck at the march. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Destiny. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.